With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
The views, opinions, and representations expressed on the Night Dreams Talk Radio Network and its website are those of the hosts, guests, and participants, and are not necessarily those of or endorsed by the network, its affiliated stations and broadcasts, the management, other hosts, or advertisers of the network. The shows found on the Night Dreams Talk Radio Network can, but do not necessarily, promote any particular lifestyle, belief, religion, political affiliation, or other personal practice. These shows are for entertainment purposes only, and are not intended to treat, diagnose, and or claim any cure of disease or condition, or give any medical or legal advice. Coming to you from some far point station, like a cosmic tumbleweed, both north and south of the Pleiades, here's your host, Gary Anderson. Well, hi everybody, I hope you had a great day tonight. We have a terrific show. Well, if that is, if you like Xena, the Princess Warrior, Hercules. Well, we're going to be talking tonight about that on the show. James, now do you believe me that you're going to get really cold in Ohio, finally? (laughs) Well, yeah, not only that, it is um, toward the end of January, halfway in the middle of the month. So it's due to get here. And believe me, I'm not looking forward to it. Well, did you see what I sent you in the news today about that vortex that's going to settle in in your area? and It's going to get really cold. i seen that, and I'm going to hold you personally responsible for that, too. Well, you know, Antarctica just lost another ice shelf. It's huge. It's big as a state. And, and you know what? It's not freezing back over. And I saw some videos here. It was just recently done from satellite it's showing Antarctica is just like a runoff of melting water everywhere. Oh, it, it, you're you're so correct, and you know that messes up a lot of ecosystems around the uh, around Antarctica. So that's listen. There's a domino effect that will happen in time. Time will tell. Well, you remember the superstorm written by Art Bell and Whitley. You know, last time we had Whitley. In fact, I did a rerun of uh, Whitley this weekend. And we were talking about the superstorm. Now, they were off by about 25 years. But 25 years in time is not much of anything, especially this type of situation. But we're setting up for a superstorm because it's not going to take much more of this water, you know, from Antarctica mixing in with the water coming from the uh, equator that is going to cause that to stall. And who knows? I mean, Siberia is going to be colder this winter than they have been in decades. Uh, Probably more in the last hundred years. That's how cold it's going to get there. But just think what would happen if that water stalled in the UK. I mean, it would be going into a mini ice age. But yeah, the um, ocean's currents are responsible for a lot of the weather around the world, whether it be warm or cold. So, yes, if those get stalled, uh, Florida may get a little colder. Uh, UK may become uh, the North Pole. We don't know. I know I wouldn't want to find out. Yeah. Well, you know what? Now's the time to sell your beachfront property in Florida and on the East Coast. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you. And then you've got uh, these volcanoes underground and um, shells falling off into the ocean, uh, even where you live, uh, one day is going to be underwater. Yeah, well, that's according to Dr. Richard Allen Miller, which was advisory on the advisory board to the White House when Nixon was president. 
And, you know, that's what he said the last time we had him on the show. It's a matter of time. It's going to happen. Unfortunately, where I'm at, well, well, put it this way. I need a submarine or something because I'm right in that area that it's going to disappear. Yeah, you're right in the um, you're right up front there. Uh, you, listen, you've got an ocean view seat for sure coming if you don't have one already. Well, put it this way. It'll be so fast. But, you know, I don't want to get into gloom. Tonight, we got a great show. I mean, Xena. Who didn't yeah. have a crush on Xena? Or Hercules, depending. My wife told me, you know, just a couple minutes ago, she had a crush on Hercules. Uh-oh, the truth's out of the bag. But, listen, those were very popular shows. And, you know, they're still playing them. I remember seeing them just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it was on one of them channels, Sci-Fi BBC. They was playing them all day long. Well, you know what? They're just as good now as they were when they originally came out. I mean, put it this way. It was a good show that you had to, you couldn't wait for the next episode. The writing was extremely good. Great actors and actresses. And and, it, and they had a comic side to it, which I always loved too, besides the other part, like, I'm going to chop your head off. Yeah, that, that's so true. And, you know, um, there was always a couple of funny uh, characters in there, too. There was always that one guy who was always, he would sell you his mother if he could. Probably did, didn't he? Uh, anyway, well, why don't you tell everybody who our guest is here? Well, our guest tonight is a very uh, famous writer. He's got all kind of credits under his belt. That's Paul Robert Coyle. And, I mean, some of the stuff he's written is like The Dead Zone, The Cape, Simon and Simon, uh, Streets of San Francisco, Barnaby Jones, Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Superboy, uh, Jake and the Fat Man, Chips, and one of my favorites, Midnight Caller. Oh, yeah. How about I Only Have Eyes for You? Now, don't get th- think I'm getting strange, James. But that <laughs> that uh, was uh, made in 1989. That was a very, very good uh, uh, movie. Uh, I And I guess I'll have to change my plan in 1988. You know, uh, it's hard to be you, 1988. I mean, I just tell you, this guy has so many critics. Uh, credits behind him. It's shocking. Oh, I know. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. Um, you know, in a lot of these these um, series, he wrote many episodes, not just one or two. So um, you're, his fingerprint is on a lot of stuff out there. I think Hercules, it was around 24 episodes he wrote. Plus, he was a producer. Uh, right. Correct. Correct. And that's the thing, uh, because I, wasn't that filmed um, in New Zealand, I believe? Oh, that's a place. You know, I've always wanted to move to New Zealand. I couldn't get my wife to, you know, go there. But, I, you know, I thought that was, you know, the scenery and everything is so beautiful and everything in New Zealand. Anyway, hey, Paul, I want to welcome to you uh, being on Night Dreams Talk Radio, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm standing by. Thanks, Gary. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, uh, great for uh, to hear all my credits there. <laughs> well, you have. We, we only touched on a very few. You know that. Uh, sure. 
<laughs> but some of the best, yeah, and people still remember them. And I have, uh, you know, we're here to talk about it. I have a book out now recounting all of my experiences and adventures on those various shows, and uh, most heavily on the, the genre shows, the sci-fi and fantasy shows that I later became involved with, because there's a huge fan base that never seems to go away for the Star Treks and Xena and Hercules. So, uh, yeah, that's so, uh, the, I keep hearing from people that they, they want to hear more and, um, uh, I've told these stories. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, how did you, well, let's, how did you ever get into writing, uh, screenplays and all this stuff, both for movies and TV shows? Well, now, my, my career has been in television. You mentioned a few titles that you mentioned there in my credits. Uh, those were, those particular titles, like I Only Have Eyes for You, were episode titles from Jake and the Fat Man, oh, okay. where every episode, for some reason, was the title of an old song. <laughs> That's uh, uh, an idea that the executive producer had early on. So Smoke It's in Your Eyes and so forth. So that, those were not feature films, so those were episodes of that particular series. Um, and in fact, they, they used snippets of those songs within the episodes, and that uh, you have to pay song rights in the reruns. And I think that's a big reason why Jacob the Fat Man has not been around uh, since the original run in terms of reruns. Whereas Matlock or Diagnosis Murder have run to, been run to death, uh, Jacob the Fat Man kind of disappeared after its uh, network run, and it was very successful and ran for five years. And I wrote something like eight or nine episodes. Um, but every one was named after a song title. And when, they, when, when, when it came down to reruns, the local stations couldn't afford to pay the music rights. So I, I think for that reason, they chose not to rerun Jacob the Fat Man at all. But the other shows that I've been involved with uh, have uh, you know, been, had healthy afterlifes. Uh, the Star Treks and Xenas and Hercules, uh, those continue to run to this day. Well, you know what? It'll be like the old Andy Griffith show, okay, or Leave mm-hmm. it to Beaver. We're going to be seeing it for the next 25, 50 years. You know that. I, I'm sure, yeah. And, you know, and then I get a little uh, check. Uh, you know, they continue to pay off in terms of residuals. Those older shows from the 60s did not, because writers at that time, they, they only got up to from six to ten uh, runs, and then after that, the stations could run them for free. Um, we went on strike in later years, so the now we're guaranteed something every time they run. I'm not talking about a huge amount of money, but it's nice that a check comes in every so often for 50 bucks here, or 100 bucks there for shows that I wrote 25, 30 years ago, you know? Well, it all helps, doesn't it? Especially in our economy. You know, my dad's <laughs> friend was James Gardner. You remember Maverick, uh, the Rockford Files yeah, and all that? My sure. dad got to know him in Korea while they're waiting to be discharged. And wow, they, they okay. became lifelong friends. I mean, I, I didn't even know who the guy was. But every summer when I was young, this guy would come and visit my dad for a week or my dad would fly down to California. And then one day mm-hmm. I was watching a show called Maverick. And I go to my dad. I say, hey, dad, that looks like your friend. He goes, that is. And I, I tell you what, I mean, the show's like that. It really you know, that's what TV is all about. But I'll tell you, James Gardner is the one that actually sued one of the big uh, protection companies, you know, in Hollywood. Warner Brothers. Yeah, Warner Brothers. Yeah, Warner Brothers, yeah. Yeah, because they didn't want to pay out royalties. And, you know, if it wasn't for him doing his thing, a lot of people wouldn't be getting some of these checks. 
That's true. And at the time, um, on behalf of actors, and then later, you know, the writers still went on strike on behalf of, of writers before I was a member. But but uh, the, the, at the time in the in the sixties, mid sixties, or earlier maybe, where that was a big uh, yeah, the studios did not want to pay ongoing residuals. We had a fight for it, just like in more recent years, we had a fight for a slice of cable television and streaming and so forth. Uh, with, a, with every advance of new technology, you know, they, they, they continue to run these shows, and we feel we deserve a small slice of that pie. So, uh, luckily, we have it now. But yeah, in those days, uh, they didn't. Yeah, I know what it's like. I mean, you know, my agent at, uh, well, my ex agent, I fired him here recently. I mean, everybody was making money off my show, but me. And one day mm-hmm. I, I said, well, gee, I, you know what? I, I'm making nothing, but you're making money and some other people are making money. Why aren't I? Well, you, hey, you're just the on-air talent. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm the one that came up with the show. I'm just the on-air. Anyway, Xena, uh, how did you get involved with the... Uh, okay, well, at that point, uh, I had, had a lot of years behind me of writing cop and detective shows like Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones and so forth. And then at a certain point, well, Simon and Simon was a show that I did, uh, and I met Mike Piller, who was story editor over there. And a few years later, Mike went on to uh, Star Trek Next Generation. He finally became the executive producer and showrunner of the, both that show and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And he called me in for because he remembered my work on Simon and Simon. So I did some rewrites on Next Generation to begin with. Um, so the, that was the work that I did for, I did not get screen credit on those particular ones, but I did ultimately get screen credit on a few episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, uh, while continuing to do rewrites for Mike, uh, of other writers. So I reinvented myself as a sci-fi writer at that point. All right, so this is around 1996, I think, I, and I, so I get a call from some uh, producers that I worked with on a lot of different shows. That, that's how you get work in this business. So you, after you're established, producers who you worked with before and they like your work, they call you in you know, to do their new shows or to recommend you to other producers. And they call one day to say a friend of ours uh, is running a brand new show called Xena Warrior Princess, and he's looking for writers, and would you like us to call him and recommend you? And I, <laughs> I believe it or not, my response, a very stupid one, was to say, what the hell is Xena Warrior Princess? It sounds ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> no thanks. So I turned that down, and they, they, they said, oh, it's a spinoff of Hercules. Hercules was already on the air at that point, but I had not seen it. I, it's just something, you know, you can't see everything. So I, I'd heard of it, but I hadn't uh, caught it. So I just didn't think Xena Warrior Princess sounded like something that was up my alley, especially since I was, you know, at that point doing the, the Star Treks. So I passed on that. And uh, time is six months, or a, a year goes by, and Xena premieres in his first season. And uh, I, again, I didn't watch it for a while, and then I said, oh, there's a show that they, uh, they had offered uh, to get me in the door to. And I started watching it, and I turned it on one week out of curiosity, and I watched it for a few minutes, and I thought the New Zealand scenery looked spectacular. Um, the show was kind of wacky with the uh, you know, fire out fight scenes and so forth, and an, an attractive uh, lead, certainly. But again, I, I just felt it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, but the next week, I checked it out again, and then, and then I ended up watching an entire episode. 
and it brought me back to my childhood when I was when I loved Greek mythology, Homer and the the Iliad and the Odyssey and so forth, and the the schlocky Steve Reeves Hercules movies. You know, I loved all that stuff, stories about giants and cyclops and so forth. And here is a show that was that <laughs> was dealing in this this subject matter. Um, today and so I, I said oh boy I really blew it maybe I could write for a show like this and um, and I said <laughs> a year I heard that Xena was picked up for a second season so I called my friends again and I said you know I do you think uh, your friend RJ might still be interested in beating new writers and then they gave him a call right away and I was invited in right away so that that's the torturous path that took me to Xena, but I, I blew the entire first season that I could have been writing it because I just, you know, I just didn't feel it was something I wanted to do. And incidentally, as a sidebar, I had the same reaction when, uh, when uh, somebody in, asked, uh, offered to introduce me to the executive producer of a new show called X-Files. <laughs> I, I passed on that. <laughs> I passed on that, and uh, but I, you know, I never got a second chance at that particular show. But luckily, things did work out on Xena, and I had a, you know, so a meeting was called, and I came up with stories to go in and pitch, and I landed an assignment, and that that that, lent, that turned into a three-year adventure spanning both Xena uh, and Hercules. So that turned out well for me. So when you do a pitch, uh, I mean, you come up with a story platform. I take it. What's on? on yeah, you come, up, you come up with half a dozen different stories. Uh, first of all, you pay attention to what they've already done. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In, in this case, Zena had a season, you know, behind it, but uh, in Hercules had been on the year before that. Xena was a spinoff of Hercules. The pilot of Xena was an episode of Hercules in its first season. So you figure out, well, these are the kind of stories they're doing, Greek mythology, and you don't want to repeat stories they've already done. So I went to the, to the public library for days in a row and just uh, threw myself back into the, the Greek myths, <laughs> you know, trying to draw potential storylines. And um, so I came up with half a dozen. That's the way it works. And I went in, though, the day I went in for the meeting, the executive producer was there, the, the, the entire staff, um, which is very unusual. I thought I'd just be meeting with the one producer that I'd been recommended to, but the entire creative force of, of both the Xena and Hercules were, were in the room. Um, I thought, what are they expecting, Aaron Sorkin? You know, <laughs> that, that was unusual for, for them to meet a freelance writer like that, but I'd come recommended by, you know, and... Um, so I pitched uh, various stories, and uh, the meeting was going well, but 
But the, the last story I pitched was, wasn't even from Greek mythology. It was an Agatha Christie kind of, um, and then there were, you know, uh, Ten Little Indians kind of thing where uh, there's a competition among warlords and they're being killed off one by one and Xena's caught in the middle of it. Uh, that's the one they went for, so that's the one that turned into to an assignment, and that was my first episode of Xeno. How, how, long, how long does it take, uh, Paul, to write, uh, you know, the script for one show? Well, typically, you, all right, so you went for the meeting, as I just described it, and pitch, and they say, okay, we'll get back to you. Now, very often, you never hear from them again. Um, sometimes, in the, if it's a network show, they have to run the story buffet. Even if the producers want to do it, they have to call the network and get a go-ahead, uh, get a green light. Um, but, in, you know, a few days went by, and they called me. They said, all right, this is the one we want to do, the Saga the Christie story. And they called me back in, and they had made some changes, some adjustments in it, which made it, you know, <laughs> which improved what I pitched and made it a real Xena story. And so they gave me my marching orders, and then you go off and you write what's called an outline or a beat sheet, the, the beat, all the beats of the story within an hour, um, five, four acts, uh, five or six beats or scenes per act. Um, so you work on that, and then you come in, and then you probably get notes and go away and rewrite that. And then at that point, the writer goes to script. They, at that point, then if the story isn't working out, they can either kill it, and you're paid off, and then you go away, and maybe somebody else writes the script. Um, but uh, what you want is for them to pick up the option for the teleplay, which they did in this case. So I did a draft of the teleplay of that, and then a polish. You know, again, you get some notes, and then you do a rewrite. And then as a freelancer, the, that's it. Any further work that the episode may need, generally the, the staff will do it themselves. But it had been a good experience, and it turned out well. And so I, um, I think they immediately gave me a second assignment. But what happened soon after that was uh, very unusual. My first episode, called Ten Little Warlords, was scheduled to go into production. And uh, it was in pre-production. And then what happened was Lucy Lawless was here in Los Angeles shooting, a, uh, an episode, uh, shooting The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And they were doing a comedy bit on horseback out in the parking lot and she fell off the horse or was thrown off the horse and seriously hurt rushed to the hospital and um, <laughs> ironically that had not happened on the set of Xena where she was involved in all these intensive stunts all the time but it happened in Burbank and so everything was put on hold all right the, the show may have to shut down we <laughs> what's going to happen we, uh, immediately they didn't know what the long term effects to Lucy might be she had shattered her leg or you know su sustained some serious injuries oh wow and i hadn't met her i hadn't met her of course but uh, i heard nothing but great things about her and our executive producer by the way would they ultimately get married during the time i was on the show rob tappert who i was seeing every day in the course of writing these shows, um, uh, was her uh, fiancé at the time, and then, then they got married. So um, that's she hung out in Los Angeles when she wasn't in New Zealand, uh, simply because that's where, uh, this is where Rob was. So um, next thing I know, I'm called into to a meeting, and they say, all right, well, Lucy's going to recuperate, but she's going to have to miss a number of episodes, but she'll be back later in the season. And what what we need to do is take your episode, and we're we're going to do a um, we're going to have to rewrite it so that Zena's not in it, 
And they prior to that, they had shot an episode. They had just finished shooting an episode, which was what's called a body swap episode, where Xena swaps bodies with her greatest enemy, Callisto. So the two actresses, you know, swapped roles, so to speak. They said, well, we're going to alter the ending of that episode so that Xena does not get back into her regular body and carry over the body swap situation into yours. And they, they I said, oh, well, all right, well, that'll keep, that way you'll be able to, shoot 90% of my script uh, the way it is. And to, to my surprise, they wanted me to do that rewrite because they, the, the staff, it was a very short staff, um, were consumed with the emer new emergency episodes that would be Xena-free. So they hired me back, paid me again to write that script over with these new uh, conditions and a few new scenes to, ex to explain the continuing body swap. So my first episode of Xena got shot, but Lucy Lawless was not in it. <laughs> it's, it stands alone as a kind of um, unique episode in that respect. The one episode of the entire series that where another actress played Lucy, and the, the actress was uh, her name is Hudson Lake, and she played a continuing villain named Callisto, who that character was very popular with the audience. So I think my episode proved popular. It was very unique. Um, but after that, I continued to write episodes. Gradually, Lucy did return, so uh, we got back on track. Wow. We out of curiosity, were you ever there when they were doing the filming of the show and watch it? Yes. Well, uh, what happened was uh, after uh, writing a bunch of um, Xenas, I went on to write a Hercules, and then I was invited on to staff at Hercules. So I spent the next two years as a writer-producer on Hercules, and, but because I did both shows, I, I handled the crossover episodes in which Lucy would come and guest star on Hercules. And the, the point is, yes, uh, after a year of this, I'm saying, oh, this is great, you know, and I'm, I love working with these people here in Hollywood, and I have an office, and, but I'm missing, you know, the show is shooting in New Zealand half a world away. So I felt so out of touch. But I did finally get to go for one of my episodes that fell during a, just before a hiatus, and uh, we, the writers, were uh, put on vacation for a few months, but the show was continuing to film one episode, which happened to be my script, so I got to go for that one. Oh wow how did it feel to be able to sit there and watch them filming what you wrote oh well first of all i had i typically did that over the years for shows that i had written that shoot that was shooting here in los angeles like barnaby jones and chips and simon and simon and crazy like a fox which is another show that i was heavily involved with i i would go to the set and hang out as a freelance writer i had no obligations you know i wasn't there to to handle any on-set rewrites, <laughs> I was strictly a, a visitor. But it was fun because my job was done, and now I get to to be on location or on a sound stage and watch them making it. I, I always enjoyed doing that. Um, but when I finally became a producer on Hercules, it was frustrating that the show was so far away, and I wasn't able to do that on, <laughs> on a regular basis. We'd get dailies. We wouldn't see the film that they shot on one day until several days later because... Uh, we'd have to wait for it to be sent to Los Angeles. Um, but it was a well, a smoothly run operation, and, and uh, a lot of shows shoot on location now. I mean, a lot of them shoot in Canada, but the writing staff's all typically always here in Los Angeles. And they didn't want a writer on set, uh, neither Xena or Hercules, because then that writer would not be in L.A. doing their job, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> i got to ask you a question. I would have loved Sure. What was it like in New Zealand? I mean, for filming the, I mean, I've never been in New Zealand in my life, 
I mean, what's the climate like? What was the atmosphere? In the, oh, it rains. The it rains all the time. That's what the climate is like. Uh, and if you, if you watch the show, you can often see in the background that it's pouring, <laughs> pouring rain. And, but, uh, well, well, look, it's a great, it's a 13-hour plane ride. So that alone was, you know, I'd never been on a flight that long before. And, and we had regular people, guest stars, who American guest stars who flew over on a regular basis, directors and, uh, who would fly <laughs> and our executive producer would go back and forth every five or six weeks and i'm saying oh my god this flight almost nearly killed me I, and then they get off the plane and they take they, they take your right uh, they say oh they don't want to give you 24 hours uh, because then you you never get acclimated to the time shift so they grab you when you get off the plane and they take you right to the set or right to the to the office and uh that you get thrown right into it um so i Got to go, you know, they drive on the opposite side of the road over there, so that was takes some getting used to. Uh, the, the wheel is on the opposite side of the car, so yeah, the first that... thing I did with the rental car was drive it into a wall and uh, uh, <laughs> put a big scratch in the side of it. Okay, now, we, um, need, to, we need to take a two-minute break. We'll be back with yep. Paul, and we'll find out a little bit more about his accident he had on the rental car. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. We'll be right back, so stay tuned. You can advertise your business on Night Dreams Talk Radio, and you will be heard worldwide. Why not contact us at nightdreamstalkradio at gmail.com. We're here to make you Hi, Tom Davis here with Metatron Power and Light. We'd like to thank everyone for all the positive emails and responses to our music. Our music can be found on Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, and all digital outlets and is featured on Night Dreams Talk Radio with Gary Anderson. Metatron Power and Light is a band that deals with esoteric subjects, the paranormal, and other topics that engage the spirit and mind. Visit MetatronPowerAndLight.com to learn more. We are facing a time of great change and the future is unwritten. But when we come together and seek answers, we expand our awareness until we begin to see the unseen. Uncovering secrets allows us to develop the knowledge we will need to shape our future and control our destiny. Stay safe, stay indoors, and listen to us. From the compound in beautiful Gig Harbor, Washington... Night Dreams Talk Radio presents your host, Gary Anderson. And that is me. I tell you what, I can't believe we're talking about one of my favorite all-time shows. I'll be honest with you, Xena and Hercules. I mean, I was just hooked on it for years and years. And having eight children, they were hooked on it. So, hey, Dad, Xena is on. Oh, I was there be. I think almost as fast as they were to the boob tube to watch it. Now, you just got your rental car. You forgot they drive on the other side of the road, didn't you? <laughs> well, it's not that I forgot. It's just a depth perception issue. When you're behind the wheel and you're, you're trying to back out of a parking spot and you're against the wall and I just misjudged. It was very typical. I mean, Kevin Sorbo told me that he did the same thing on his first day. And then when you're driving down the road, you're on the opposite side of the road. But <laughs> 
So, all right. So it's, it's just a, it's an alternate world, you know, a parallel uh, dimension world over there. Um, but of course, they speak English. So uh, once you get past that in the climate where it's rainy all the time, um, and you're trying to shoot scenes, and there are there are insects called cicadas that are you know, a certain time of the year they they're just uh, noisy, and you have to loop everything, you know, back in Los Angeles. But um, I got to do some sightseeing. You know, I was there because my show was shooting, but I was also there as a tourist. So so I got to do that. So I was there about ten days total, I'd say. And there was I discovered there was a nice uh, casino right near the hotel <laughs> that I was staying at. Uh, so I was happy there. It would be strange for me to go back now without the show because it, you know my feeling would be, oh no, the, you know my glory days are behind me. Now I'm a, now I'm just a tourist. <laughs> but it's a great place if uh, if and I hear they've got the virus relatively under control, don't they? I, I mean, it hasn't been a big uh, as big an issue there as it has been in much of the world. I, I've noticed um, that. But yeah. it, I, but it I, causes to be tough flying in and out, sure. But uh, do you no, know? I love the answer is I love the New Zealand, and it was so good for the show. I mean, the, look at that lush green scenery. It looked unlike anything else on television. If Hercules had been shooting in Burbank or, you know, or in Canada or someone, it might have been a successful show, but it never would have looked the same. It never looked... It, it, it would not have looked as uh, as rich, and of course, uh, a few years later, Lord of the Rings shot there, and and uh, used a lot of the props left over from Zena uh, and Hercules. We had an enormous warehouse full of costumes and props that they gave me a tour of. That I'm, my eyes were popping. I'm saying this is as big as Universal Studios uh, prop and wardrobe departments, and the, and it was just servicing these two shows. That that's always the only shows that were filming there at the time, American shows anyway, and we had an entire studio lot, an office building, and several sound stages that were devoted to the to the two shows. And a few years later, uh, a year or so later, uh, uh, another spinoff, Young Hercules, starring Ryan Gosling, came to came to be. And so these shows were all sharing the same uh, sets and props and costumes, and uh, it was fantastic. How much of it was actually filmed on location, not in the studio? Well, uh, with any show, you you need um, uh, two or three days on stage uh, because if it's pouring rain out, you, you want to cancel going out that day. So you need to have sets, uh, you know, interiors that, that you're going to shoot on stage. But for every show, for every episode we did, seven days, so sometimes eight uh, there were roughly two to three days on stage, and the rest would be outdoors. Outdoors in at various locations that could could pass for ancient Greece. Obviously, um, we, we couldn't uh, show freeways or cars uh, in the background. So, but uh, there were plenty. There was no shortage of locations in New Zealand that could uh, could work for us. Interesting too. I, I and they had roughly what seven days to film each episode. Seven to eight, typically. Yes. Yeah, you know that's that, still true today of any show. Yeah. Yeah, except for Stargate, uh, Star Trek. Uh, towards the end of Star Trek, when I heard it was like they, they cut them down to four or five days. Oh no! Which I'm not sure which Star Trek. The, you re- mean, you the, mean the original. The original Star Trek. Yeah, the last season uh, when the network was trying to you know unload the show because it was so costly. That uh, from what uh, Mark Cushman, who's been on our show, who wrote a book about Star Trek also, 
said right. that they, oh, they cut several the, books about it. Sure. Yeah, they cut down um, the uh, shooting time. Well, they may they may have cut the budget in general, and uh, yeah, that happens. And every show, you know, we always had to do what what are called clip shows. Every every season, at least one or two clip shows, and those would be short shoots of four days each. Uh, comprised largely, you know, find an excuse to do clips from previous episodes so you would have to shoot less original material. In fact, the last Xena that I did was a clip show uh, set in modern day. Um, but those are budget-busting episodes, so, so you, but the rest of the episodes, uh, you know, you're always going to go over budget, so what, or over time on, on occasion, so what was scheduled to be a seven-day episode may, may if, if they didn't pick up everything they needed, they might have to go a day over and over budget. That's why you need to, an occasional four-day shoot to uh, put everything back on track. But to routinely shoot, there's no one-hour show that could, you can't shoot a one-hour show, whether it took in the 1960s or today, you can't shoot them all in four days. That's... Um, they would look ultra cheap. Star Trek never looked that cheap. But yes, I agree, toward the end, they had their budget cut, so they, were prob- they, were, they may have done some four-day shows. I, I, I can't believe it was typical of, of uh, too many episodes that season. Yeah. You know, I, what, how come Xena, uh, what ended the series? I mean, I was really shocked when the show came to an end because I thought it, they could have gone on another couple of years. Uh, well, I, all the Star Treks of the period, uh, not talking about the original now, but I'm talking about Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, they all went seven years. And um, they were in first-run syndication, or in the case of Voyager, it was on the the UPN network. Um, that was almost the same as, as being in syndication, as far as I was concerned. But Hercules and Xena ended up doing six years apiece. And the answer is, well, it's uh, twofold. In, our, in the case of Hercules, Kevin Sorbo's contract was ending, and um, that's kind of why Herc ended after six years. But they had made a, a series of two-hour movies you know, before the one-hour episodes premiered, and um, Kevin considered that a first season. There were five two-hour movies, I think. Um, anyway, the, and Xena lasted a year later, a year longer, and also ended after six episodes. And what was happening was... the. The bottom was falling out for first-run syndicated shows uh, like Hercules and Xena because we had prime times on Saturday nights um, in Los Angeles on Channel 5 and on local stations. But around the country, we had great time slots, and, um, and they'd, they'd run on Saturday or Sunday evenings, and then they'd run twice within the week. The second run would be typically on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Um, but what happened um, at that point was the WB network – which had previously been Monday through Friday only, expanded into Saturday and Sunday nights. And that kicked shows like ours off the air on those nights. So the only time slots left were Saturday afternoons at 2 or 3 o'clock or Sunday at 1 or 2 a.m., you know, overnight. So, so we lost those all primetime shows. Same thing happened to Deep Space Nine. Uh, it was almost impossible to to hold an audience when, when, those, when they weren't airing in prime time anymore. Um, this is a little bit before uh, DV, DVRs, and um, they existed. But by and large, you know, people watched shows when they were on, <laughs> when they were live. And when we were on Saturday nights or Sunday nights, that was, 
that was best. We were basically equal to network shows and getting the same percentage of audience. But when those when the, we got squeezed out of those nights, it was the beginning of the end for syndicated shows, and they never have made a comeback uh, really since. I know it, it's it's strange. I mean, Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In Fox Network, you know, they only survived because of married uh, with children. Is what gave the them beginning. the big, you know, beginning right. of what Fox was, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can see. Was it a, was it a big cutthroat? Being a writer, isn't it a cutthroat industry too? Oh, sure. Well, is <laughs> that's fair to say? I'm sure, but uh, you know, I made a decent living as a freelance writer all those years, and you could go from show to show. And I loved not being tied down to any particular show. So about when the opportunity came for me to be on staff at Hercules, um, that was, you know, too good to pass up. Um, I, was, I was really busy at that time. I was doing three shows in one season, Xena, Hercules, and another show called The Cape about NASA astronauts. And uh, I was writing freelance, you know, jumping back and forth, back and forth between them all. Um, but when Hercules offered, you know, it's a lot of money to, to be brought on staff as a producer and... Um, uh, the, the Cape also wanted me on staff, and they wanted to send me to Florida to be the. That's where, that's where that show shot. Uh, I would have been on the an onset uh, writer producer, uh, but they were canceled soon after that anyway. So that never, they never ended up having a second season. So I ended up on Hercules, and I was very happy for, for the next two years. And as I say, I continued to write Xena. Oh, the, the two shows, you know, share the same executive producer, Rob, and and some various other people, but had their own individual writing staffs. Um, so once I went on to Hercules, I was more heavily involved with Hercules. But as I say, whenever we had Lucy crossover for a guest shot, that they, they, they let me handle those episodes because I had I was the one that had experience writing Xena at that point. And then when Hercules ended, I, you know, I went back and did one last Xena before that show ended. So. Um, it was a great experience for me. And uh, <laughs> as you say, the fans are still out there. And another thing, we had conventions all over the country, just like Star Trek. Had, you know, at, at one point, I would say that Xena and Hercules rivaled Star Trek in terms of the, the fan base at the height of the show's popularities. Uh, you know, the, Xena was a pop culture phenomenon. And uh, they, they, they were conventions, and the actors would appear at them, and the writer-producers were also invited to appear at them. So I... I uh, had a nice little secondary uh, <laughs> profitable thing where they would fly me to different cities on the weekend to to um, talk to the fans. That was fun. That was a perk that I never had on Jake and the Fat Man or any of the other uh, type shows that I wrote prior to that. What of all uh, the shows that you wrote for, which was your favorite one you really enjoyed writing for? Well, I, I have to say, because it was my first, Streets of San Francisco, that was a really quality show, and I... Um, that was a great way I, I felt for me to begin. That was a terrific show and uh, still well-remembered. Carl Mulder to Michael Douglas. And, uh, you know, prior to that, I had been working as a, as a night security guard, and I wrote spec scripts 
in the guard shack all night long, and I, the first one I sold was Streets of San Francisco. So I quit the guard job, and I never looked back. I've been a writer ever since. That sounded like you made the right move, I tell you that. i, I got to ask you a question. <laughs> While you were a guard in the shack, right. did anything ever bad happen from the standpoint you were so busy writing your script that maybe somebody walked out with something or anything like that? No, nothing like that. Well, first of all, I talk about this in my book, the, 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 the book that I have out now, which recounts all of these experiences. Um, they wanted, you know, first, my first draft of the thing was, uh, was, the book was all about Hercules and Xena and Star Trek, including script excerpts and memos and so forth, because I saved all that stuff. And the publisher said, this is all great, but we want to know your story. What, you know, what brought you to Hollywood? Who were you? How did you get started? And so forth. So I went back and reapproached it as a memoir. So all of these stories about my starting out and selling my first script and being a security guard are in there. And I was a, uh, specifically, I was a guard at a movie studio um, for a year, um, the night guard from midnight to eight. So by the time I came in at midnight, everybody was leaving. The technicians were all leaving and I would lock up the gate and I had the run of that studio all night long. Uh, the, the keys to every office uh, the, the, every soundstage, and I could read scripts on producers' desks, and and I would carry a typewriter, uh, an IBM Selectric, out to the guard shack. <laughs> um, nothing, nothing ever happened. There was nobody around. You know, there was no crime <laughs> that could have possibly happened because the studio was locked up. They, there was nobody there until they started coming in at seven in the morning. By that time, I I was you know leaving. So it was look. I loved. I loved it, that job, it, it, mainly because it gave me the opportunity to write all night long. And as I say, I wrote that one script that I, in fact, sold. And that, that was exactly a year after I had uh, signed on to that job, because I was on a one-week paid vacation. And during that week, I sold that script, and so I turned in my resignation, and I never went back to the garden job. And I, I'll tell you, I regret it to this day, because I, I should have gone back for one more night at least, you know, so I, so I could say goodbye to the people that I, that I did know from when they'd come in in the morning. Um, Norman Lloyd, who was a producer on that lot, is a well-known character actor. He's, he's over 100 years old right now. He was one of the stars of St. Elsewhere and had, prior to that, a long association with Alfred Hitchcock. He was a producer on that lot, and I was friendly with him. And another guy, Taylor Hackfood, who later directed uh, An Officer and a Gentleman, uh, these guys are all on that studio lot, and um, and uh, look, it was just a great experience, a great job to have because the job itself didn't require me to do much. You know what I'm saying? Walk around the studio and check locks to make sure the doors were locked. That, that was kind of it. And the rest of the time, I was on my own and with nobody to bother me. I did the job. Look, I wasn't sloughing off on the job, right? I was there in the guard shack. If anything <laughs> was happening, I would have been aware of it. Well, I think being but, in the studio, too, didn't it help you come up with ideas to write? I mean, because oh, yeah. look at oh, the, the richness oh, yes. of it. As I say, that I could wander around the sets because I had to walk out of the soundstage and, uh, walk, walk, and pick up the scripts that were left uh, lying there so I could read all the scripts they were shooting. These, this, this, you know, had I had I had a typical job where you're occupied doing whatever it is, I, I wouldn't have had all that time to to write. I, you know, I still would have found the time in my off hours, but um, that particular job at that particular time was perfect for me. That was, 
Yeah, I would. I had already been in Los Angeles for five years, for four years before I got that job. And I started out. You know, I came here for college and took a writing course and had an early adventure where I, <laughs> I talk about this in the book. I uh, was taking a writing course at Los Angeles City College from Dorothy Vontana, who had been a story editor on the original Star Trek. And as a result of that course, I landed a, an assignment on the animated Star Trek in 1973. So that was tremendous. I thought that was a great opportunity, and I wrote a story which they, which on assignment, which they paid me for. But then the, the, the Gene Roddenberry changed his name, and they didn't want to make that episode, so they, they killed the story. And I, I had been sitting around waiting for a go-ahead to write the script, just anxiously waiting. And um, I went ahead and write it, wrote it, and, and sent it in, and then they sent it back, saying they refused to pay for it because they had decided to cut off the story. But but nobody had told me, so <laughs> so that um, was an early, you know. I, I don't consider that my first credit. I consider Streets of San Francisco a few years later my first credit because that was the one that actually got made. But I did have a false start there with that Star Trek adventure, and it was after that that well, I, I then said, oh my God, this either I either I leave and go back home to Providence where I came from, or I stay here and stick it out. And I got that guard job, and I continued to write specs all night long. And I had an agent who was uh, out there willing, willing to submit them to the producers of various shows. So luckily, by by sticking with it, I was able to um, make that first sale. And I've made a living as a writer ever since. Well, the the first one you did, basically, that got produced, uh, Streets of San Francisco. Which episode was that? What was the, the name of that it was, one? It was, well, it was called The Honorable Profession. And it was in the show's fourth season. The show lasted five years. Michael Douglas uh, left at the end of the fourth season. So Michael was in my episode. And, and a guest starred Robert Reed. And it was, it was a story about a, a guy who was um, masquerading as a doctor. What, what happened in real life was at one time I, I saw a guy who was on the sidewalk. I, I don't remember if he had been hit by a car or something, but he was in some kind of distress and a crowd of people was gathering around him. Nobody knew what to do. And a guy pushed through the crowd and said, I'm a doctor. Let me, let me look at him. And this guy took over. And, and in my perverse writer's mind, I thought, what if that guy's not really a, 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 a doctor? Um, you know, he says he is, but what if he, what if he isn't? What, what would that be all about? So I wrote a story about a guy who went to medical school and washed out for various reasons, but really was uh, dedicated. He would have been a good doctor, but he... But he wasn't. But he but he hangs out a shingle and he he calls himself one, and um, that was a story of me wanting to be a writer and nobody <laughs> nobody giving me the opportunity. I just uh, made it about a guy who wants to be a doctor. You know, it was, it, that was the subtext. So I, I wrote a story from personal experience, and they they liked it and they bought it and they shot it like a week later. Oh wow! So that episode you can probably find that on online somewhere. I'm gonna to have to check that one yeah. out. I, I, so you yeah. you've done a lot of writing. I mean, Simon and Simon, you know, another show. I mean, you know, it kind of took its roots, didn't it, from the Rockford Files? I know the one uh, star of the show uh, kind of played a detective on Rockford File, and also they end up playing uh, an, on an episode of Magnum uh, PI. But uh, Simon Simon was another great uh, detective show between the two brothers yes and that was 
that at that point, that was, Simon and Simon was a, like a, a, a new kind of show, which was a blend of comedy and drama. It's called a dramedy. Those were becoming popular around that time. When I started on shows like Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones, those were straight line, old fashioned dramas <laughs> or, you know, action dramas. But uh, there wasn't much humor or comedy mixed into them because that was the way shows were done in those days. Rockford Files was one of the first to, to change that, uh, to, to become, to have humor mixed in, to, to be a comedy drama. And I had to reinvent myself, and so um, I was able to do that with Simon & Simon. I stood, even though I, I, by that point I had five or six years of writing scripts on assignments, uh, on assignment, but uh, now there was a new format, I had to reinvent myself, so I wrote a spec Simon & Simon, and that's the one that Mike Piller um, bought and then he then I wrote a second Simon assignment so I <laughs> and then I went on to another comedy drama called Crazy Like a Fox with Jack <laughs> Warden oh that was and a I, good show I became story yeah I became story editor over there and that was a great experience so so at that point and <laughs> now I was a, a a comedy drama writer <laughs> you know uh, prior to the you know the fact that I began so young on shows like Streets of San Francisco, the typical writer for Streets of San Francisco at that point was in his 50s. Or, or there were a few women writers, but mostly the, the, it was male white writers in their 50s who were writing those kind of shows in those days. So I think um, with those shows as my credits, a lot of other producers assumed I was I fit that category. Um, in fact, I was you know I was young and and and. Um, so I reinvented myself with Simon and Simon and Crazy Like a Fox, and then again reinvented myself with the shows like Star Trek and uh, Hercules and Xena. Um, so that's, you know, every writer goes through phases in their career, and those were mine. Uh, again, of all these different shows you wrote for, which one, again, was your favorite? Well, as I, 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 again, I have to say Streets, because that was, that was the first but uh, believe me, Xena's right up there. Hercules is right up there. Crazy like a fox because because of my see it's because of my experience on these shows and and having good relationships with the producers behind the scenes stuff, um, as opposed to you know a viewer simply watching the show. Well, all of those shows were well received and had had all their fans, and uh, I guess I would have been a fan of all of them anyway. Obviously, I was a fan of Streets in order to sit down and write a spec script for them in the first place. Um, but I've enjoyed all of, you know, all of the, you mentioned Midnight Caller. That's another show I did. Um, that was not such, such, it was a good show, Gary Cole. Um, but I have to say that the people I worked with on that show were not, <laughs> it was not a great experience. I only did one episode and I would, believe me, I was happy to be done with it. Um, there are just a very few examples of shows that I worked with over the years where I didn't click with the with the with the staff or with the producer. It happens, you know. You're not gonna. It's not gonna be a love affair with every person you work with. No, you're absolutely right. So you write the script and all that stuff, then you submit it back to them. Then they buy it from you. Didn't do they at that point rewrite it up and? And make changes as needed, you know, for the filming? Oh, of course. Absolutely. But uh, typically, I, I mean, I wrote that Streets of San Francisco on what they called on spec. I just wrote it on my own. And then later I did the Simon Assignment on my own, and they bought those. Everything else has been an assignment, where, which I described earlier. You go in to meet with the producers, like as I did on Xena that first time. You pitch stories, 
and then they make adjust whatever adjustments they want to make if if they want to buy one at all. Um, they set you on a course, and then you go off and write that. And if you do a good enough job for them, hopefully you get a second assignment on that show or a third, uh, assuming the show itself isn't canceled. <laughs> That's another reason why I never, why I turned down Xena in the beginning before I, it was even on the air, because I didn't like to get involved with first season shows, because the the mortality rate was so high. <laughs> Tell me you about spend it. As, you know, you spend months working on an episode, and then the show is canceled and there's never any reruns. So as much as possible, I tried to only become, only get involved with shows that are already on the air for three or four years. I felt as a, you know, that way I'm going to make residuals, uh, you know, for the next 20 years. Well, you know, that was my philosophy. Uh, you know, I got involved because I was managing, because I've been in broadcasting all my life, adult life. And I took a break for a while and I managed a chain of professional camera stores. Uh, one was in Tacoma, and they were filming the new Fugitive series there, downtown Tacoma. Yeah. The old, and yeah, I tried to get involved with that show. I loved the original series with David Jensen. That was one of the big um, the things that turned me on to, you know, maybe I could have a career writing this when I grow up. And I loved the movie with Harrison Ford. And I tried, that TV series of The Fugitive that you're talking about with Tim Daly was just after Xena and Hercules ended. So I tried my best to get an appointment with the producers of that show, but it never worked out. Well, uh, but the series itself didn't last long. I know. And what I did is they were filming in front of our building quite a bit. And mm -hmm. I naturally, right. my other passion besides being a you know talk show host was always photography. So I started taking pictures. And mm -hmm. Daly hated what I was doing. It, I guess it threw his timing off because having somebody across <laughs> the street taking pictures... The director came over, started yelling at me. Then he looked at my work. And the next thing I know, the producer is calling me. The director is over there, and they're offering me a job as their still photographer. So no they, kidding. That's the, great. And, yeah, so they convinced me to quit my job. I give notice, and I quit my job, right? And then... Yeah, and then the, the, the next thing you know, the, the, the fugitive is canceled, and you're out of work. I get the phone call before I... I get ready to move my wife was ecstatic because it was a lot of money and yeah i get this phone call saying hey don't quit your job the show is this canceled yeah, right. i yeah i already quit my job you know what what can i right yeah i i learned that's my only only thing ever with you know tv and i'll tell you what that was enough to like ah i never want to get involved again we need to take a break uh paul this one's about three and a half minutes long when we come back, we'll talk more about, you know, what you've done, your book you wrote about uh, Xena and all this stuff. And, uh, well, we'll just go from there. You're listening to Night Great. Dreams Talk Radio. We'll be right back. So stay tuned. History, I paused to take a sigh About the land Afghanistan Where empires go to die Alexander the Great, he tried and failed The Mongols, they did too The British and the Russians They got their ass kicked too 
America's been there many years And I ask myself why We don't learn from history Where empires go to die They say it's terrorism That's political malarkey Just follow where the money goes to a corporate oligarchy. The food crops they once grew with a plow and a hoe been turned into opium poppies, growing row on row. Our infrastructure is crumbling, our social structure too. It's a corporate scam, they don't give a damn while screwing over me and you. Outrage, I don't hear no public cry About sending young men and women Where empires go to die We lost people and treasure in Vietnam And there still ain't no upside We're doing the same in a no-win game Where empires go to die It's a new world order agenda With a demonic rising tide They want America's soul in a deep dark hole Where empires go to die Dreams Talk Radio, After Dark, wants to give a big shout-out to all the truckers that listen to our show. Good evening, or morning, depending on your time zone. From the Pacific to the Atlantic to you worldwide, get yourself a cup of java and find a comfy, easy chair. And get ready for Gary and his guest on Night Dreams Talk Radio After Dark. And now, here's Gary. And here I am. Well, we're talking about Xena. We're talking about Hercules, the streets of San Francisco, so many other great shows out there. Simon and Simon, a great guest tonight. Hey, Paul. Uh, again, what made you decide to write about this Xena and the Princess Warrior and Hercules and all that? Well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I've always enjoyed reading behind-the-scenes books written by other people. You know, actors have been publishing biographies for years. And uh, in recent years, I read a few by writer-producers, um, the anecdotes of their adventures in television. 
and it occurred to me, you know, I could I could write a thing like that, and the shows that I have would have to write about, as as we mentioned, have the continuing big fan bases. So um, years ago, I you know, I think when when her, when Hercules and Xena first ended, I thought about writing a book about how to write for sci-fi and fantasy television. Um, but I, there were a lot of books at that time about how to write this genre or that genre. Uh, but that, I, you know, I lost interest in that because there's really no secret <laughs> in, in, in writing any genre of television. The, the rules are the same for all dramatic uh, storytelling. So anyway, I, I put that aside at the time. But then I read these other books by other writers, just, just a few, and I say, oh, you know, if they, if they wrote about shows that, um, that were even older than mine, <laughs> one guy wrote about shows from the, the starting with the Virginian and, and even lesser known shows. So I'm saying, well, you know, maybe I should uh, rethink my idea about uh, behind the scenes stuff, but, but I wanted to include scripts and memos and so forth. So I said, all right, let, let me uh, try and approach it. Um, let me try and contact uh, a publisher. And I sent a query letter and <laughs> they, they jumped for it right away. I mean, I was surprised at how, um, you know, I, I, well, I wrote a sample chapter to see, uh, it's just something I would really be interested in doing because I'd never written a book before and I'd only written scripts. So, um, I wrote the sample chapter and they agreed to read it and they read it and, uh, right from there it was uh, smooth. I mean, it took, how long did it take? It took over a year or so. And then, um, then another three or four months working with the editor on it. So it didn't happen overnight. But it went very smoothly. I didn't have to shop it around, you know, the way you you normally might, uh, sending it out and getting rejections. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book, and he said he he, he wrote it on spec, and then he, he he gave up submitting it after after 50 rejections. And I'm saying, oh my God, you know. Um, luckily, I just didn't have to jump through those hoops. And I think there are people. I mean, I enjoy reading books like this, and I. And as I say, the publishers had me expand and write in my life story as, you know, what began, uh, uh, where did I come from? In my case, Providence, Rhode Island. What was it like growing up? What made me want to become a writer? Uh, how did it work coming to Hollywood, not knowing anybody out here, having no contacts? And then just by becoming a security guard and writing in the guard shack all night long. And then the, the adventures of the, the shows that I actually sold and the, the ones that were made. And then once once you get into the Star Treks and Hurricanes and Xena, I go into much more detail, uh, episode to episode, really, uh, with script excerpts and um, and you know if people. I love reading that stuff as a kid. I mean, the first time I ever saw a script was on the pages of a magazine where they published four or five pages of a Star Trek script, and I had never seen script writing format before, and I it, my, it opened my eyes, and I'm saying, oh, I could write something like this. So uh, I think a beginning writer, a wannabe writer, would be interested in my stories, uh, and separately fans of these particular shows uh, might be interested in all this behind-the-scenes stuff. Some of the, uh, the behind, these- some of the behind-of-the-scenes stuff I know, like there's a book about Star Trek. You know, it oh, went- there have been many. Yeah, well, Mark Cushman has written recent books about Trek. And they're going way back to the the late 1960s when I was still living in Providence in high school. There was a book called The Making of Star Trek, the first book of its type that I ever remember by a guy named Stephen E. Whitfield. Um, I assume that's long out of print. I don't know if you could find it anymore. But it was all behind the scenes stuff and featuring memos uh, from Gene Roddenberry to NBC. And and, uh, it just opened my eyes. 
so I've loved these kind of books all along. And Star Trek, and there have been so many uh, variations on Star Trek, uh, the books never end. Not, and we're not even talking about the fiction books that have uh, been written uh, about the Star Trek characters. But behind-the-scenes stuff, and Mark Cushman has uh, specialized in them in recent years. Um, and now there, there, there were a few books about Hercules Zena at the time, but none really from the writer's point of view. Um, you know, books from, from journalists, some outsiders writing about the shows. Um, but in my case, this is uh, written from the point of view of somebody who was involved behind the scenes on, on all these shows. Well, so, it, it, and you were <laughs> writing the scripts like for Zena. How about, there was always, I hate to say this, and people have asked me this today. I got countless emails about it. There was kind of like a subtle love interest in Xena between her and her... uh, Gabrielle. Yeah, Gabrielle. Gabrielle, who's her BFF, (laughs) employed by Renee O'Connor. Yeah, they were uh, traveling companions. Um, Absolutely, they loved each other, but that's not just—that's not to say it was a lesbian relationship. Look, that <laughs> was never intended on the writers, on the creators' parts. Uh, as I say, you know, I came into the show in its second season, so that um, the—you know—the fans started uh, reading into that relationship and and running with it and speculating, and the producers were amused because they never <laughs> intended it, and you know, clearly both uh, characters were. Their orientation was heterosexual. At, uh, at one point in the first season, Gabrielle gets married to a guy who's quickly killed off. But you know, the, 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 so the producers were amused by it, and they started playing into it by having scenes with the Zena Gabrielle taking a you know taking a bath together in the stream, or you know that kind of thing. So th- that was it. It was a fun thing, and the, I think the the fans, for the most part, know that it was. It was not a, a lesbian relationship, but, um, but believe me, the, 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 the large contingent of the people who would come to the conventions were from the gay community, and they <laughs> loved the show, and we loved our fans, and, uh, you know, that was great. So the answer is it was never intended, but uh, the fans read, had fun with it and read into it what they, what they read, but they, it was a love. They loved each other as friends. There was no doubt about that. And the actresses loved each other. <laughs> it was a love fest all around, right? Well, you know, one thing I like about that show, it seemed like all the actors and actresses on the show got along. I don't know if they got along, you know, off camera, but at least uh, in on camera, they kind of all meshed sure. really good. I mean, especially the crew with Xena. I mean, you know, it was, I just, I, right. you know, good writing behind it. And actually, the good actors, you know, that carried out the uh, story plot. Yeah, and a wide range of uh, supporting characters who, who recurred between both both shows. Bruce Campbell played a recurring role. Uh, Bob Trevor played Salmonius, a traveling salesman. Uh, Michael Hurst played uh, Hercules, uh, you know, Aeolus, Hercules' uh, best uh, buddy and traveling companion. Um we had a budget where we could bring American guest stars over for every episode. No other syndicated show did that. Did not not one shooting on a distant location. If Star Trek Deep Space Nine, they uh, they they were shoot. They'd use sure they'd use great actors, but they were shooting here in Hollywood, so the actors lived here in the first place. But we had the budget to bring those people to New Zealand, um, so the shows looked better than most other syndicated uh, 
action shows of the period. There were a whole bunch of them, and Hercules inspired a lot of others, but uh, they, they all came and went quickly. can't even remember the names of them now, but uh, for a little while there was a glut of them. Um, but yeah, Kevin Sorry, everybody got along with everybody. Um, there, there was a little jealousy, I'd say, in terms of when Xena started to eclipse Hercules in terms of uh, pop culture. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, When Xena first spun off, um, they took some crew people away from Hercules, and um, Kevin didn't like that. But, uh, but it's true that uh, after all these years, Xena spun off of Hercules. It never would have been a Xena if not for Hercules. So, and the fans know that. Um, but Kevin was a little, when I, when I, Kevin gave me an interview for the book, he was very nice. And, uh, the, the title of my book, you know, Sword, Starships and Superheroes from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules. He found a little umbrage with that. He said, well, you know, Xena, Hercules should come before Xena because, <laughs> because that was a progression. And I said, well, you're absolutely right, Kevin, but I happen to have written for Kevin, for Xena first. So the chronology is correct in my particular story. Oh, wow. But uh, sure, sure. When I went over there, you know, it was a, both shows. You know, I, I went over there for my Hercules episode, but I visited the Xena set while I was there too. Um, both uh, well-run, happy sets, uh, sharing a lot of the same crew people, uh, going back and forth. So the answer is yes. <laughs> happy shows. Well, again, and, um, I think if that would have been shot, for example, in British Columbia. Somehow, it, would, it, would have, it might have been a hit, but it would have looked totally different. Yeah, I don't know if it would have been a hit because I think you know the the, the scenic backgrounds that they used for Xena. Yes, it, that right. what drew you into it. Also, somehow seeing you know uh, fir trees and and pine trees, you know, in every every episode, wouldn't have had the impact. Because I mean, let's face it, you know, they I hate to slam it, but Stargate, for example. If you watch all the episodes for all those years, right? It's always kind of like in the same, you know, same area, same yes. same background, right. same everything. Xena was beautiful. You had, you know, rivers, you had streams, you had lakes. The, just the beautiful weather, I guess, whenever they had it in between shooting. Yeah, and we could even go up into the mountains for snow on occasion. Uh, so, so, you know, some episodes... Uh, we did a, a two-parter on Hercules. It was uh, Norse, based on the Norse legends, Thor and Odin, and so forth. And uh, the, those were cold weather climate episodes. And uh, we went up to a higher elevation in New Zealand, and those those looked uh, great. So there was a wide variety, um, and the variety in the storytelling. We could do a comedy one week, and a musical the next week, and a modern day episode the next week. I mean, by the time I came on, they had pretty much used up all the Greek myths, Cyclops, and so forth. And so they, they, they started to think outside the box, and they, they turned to me for sci-fi uh, areas like time travel and uh, alternate dimensions, which were not strictly from Greek mythology. But um, I took that approach to the show, and uh, so that opened up. We could, do, we could just do anything, you know. I, I wanted to do a, a Roger Rabbit episode with a mix of live action and animation, and uh, the, our executive producer was all for it, but... That was uh, that would take too much time in terms of prep. It would t take a year or whatever to get the animation done. So that's the kind of thing we couldn't do because of certain limitations. But you name it, and we could do musical episodes, dance episodes. Um, 
it was just a you know, just a delight to be able to <laughs> you'd think of it and we could do it and, I, and we'd do it fast and uh, you know I, I related the experience where Lucy was hurt and we had to do episodes without her and then a year later the same thing happened on Hercules when Kevin Sorbo was um, in Los Angeles he suffered a stroke or a series of strokes and he ended up hospitalized and had to miss basically the, the back half of the season or come back at, at low strength and be able to shoot an, an hour a day or maybe two hours a, a day the next week and gradually, um, you know, over the period of a year or so, kind of come back to full strength. But we had to carry on the show with, with our co-stars like Bruce Campbell and um, crossovers with Xena and modern-day clip shows <laughs> where I became a character at one because we did the story of the, the staff of Hercules trying to figure out how to do a show called Hercules without our star. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. yeah, that, I, that, uh, the, that was an experience. Yeah, the, towards the end, I'll, I have to be honest with you, it kind of got bizarre because here you think, <laughs> okay, they're going to be fighting somebody. She's going to, you know, uh, shoot arrows or cut somebody's head off or something, right? And here they are, we're in Hollywood, you know, doing, uh, I, I tell you, I, it, to go from one to the other and pull it off, I, I commend you on your writing to be able to have done that. And as I say, we were forced into it. We were forced to be creative that particular season because we lost our star. So uh, we were forced to think outside the box. And I think, you know, we, we tended to rely a little too much that season on comedies but um, a lot of our supporting cast were gifted comic actors like Bruce Campbell, so we kind of naturally went in that direction. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, they, we got some great episodes out of that. And uh, we did Young Hurt, Young Hurt flashback episodes, and then the, the series itself uh, with Ryan Gosling spun off. And uh, that was a, a daytime uh, Fox Children's Network. But, uh, yeah, this was a cottage industry. Xena Herc and Young Herc for a little while there. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, I was right in the middle of it all. I was sorry to see it end. Oh yeah, so am I, and and a lot of people out there. It was a big shock when both of those series came to an end because you didn't expect it to come to an end. It you know it really you know I thought it could have gone on another couple of years, but you know maybe times have changed and stuff like that. Did you have access to when you wrote the book about how expensive it was to produce each episode and? And, and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I, I was never that concerned with the budget. You know, that, that was the, the line producer's job over in New Zealand. I mean, I, don't even, I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head what the budget was for every episode, but it was high. And, and of course, the, the dollar stretched further in New Zealand. <laughs> That's why we were there. Let's not kid ourselves, because it was cheaper to shoot in New Zealand. Um, but it was cheaper to shoot in, in British Columbia, too. And, and uh, But... Um, we didn't get the results on camera that for those shows as we did in New Zealand. So the budget never concerned me other than, of course, occasionally I'd propose something that we couldn't afford, like the, like the animation episode. Um, but we could, budget was never a big concern. We had a high budget. It was never a concern, although you've got too many, too many days outside, you have to pull back and set more scenes indoors or... We can't afford this many. You've got more than two or three American guest stars per episode. You know, we we could just afford these things. Um, budget was never a restriction. It was it's been more of a restriction on shows that I've written and shoot in L.A. Frankly, interesting. How long did it take? I mean, the shooting season. I mean, you said it took about 
seven days to shoot an episode. Yeah, and we'd, uh, and we'd have 22 to 24 episodes a year, but there were hiatuses built in, obviously around Christmas and New Year's, but, um, well, it's a continuous thing that all television is. It's, a, you know, it's one after the other, and the next script is coming up before you, before you know it. It's, uh, it's a machine, <laughs> television, and some people thrive in it. And uh, others are intimidated by it. I always liked working on the deadline. You know, we, we get a, you know, we had a script scheduled the next week, and we had to throw it out, uh, or, or, or we have an actor who hurt himself or herself, and now we have to rewrite the whole thing and start from scratch. Um, I personally persevered under pressure. You know, some people can't take that heat, but. Uh, that's working. That's what television is. It's a monster. It grinds, uh, it grinds you up. <laughs> it's, but we, you know, we could afford to do what we needed to do. I can't think of um, any major stories or scripts that we couldn't do strictly because of budget. We, you know, if we do, we did those episodes. It was set in the, the Norse country, and uh, of course, it was shot in New Zealand. It wasn't shot anywhere else. We did some other episodes that were supposedly set in Ireland. Um, but we may do with uh, what we had in New Zealand, which is just a rich, a rich atmosphere. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now you re- you wrote the screenplay for each episode. Uh, when you do that, uh, then it goes to rewrite. Who? How many people are involved sure. in making changes? Well, we all were in the sense that we. Oh, I'm talking all the staff. All right. So at that point, I was a producer, but I was a writer. So I'd rewrite some freelance scripts, or and I'd write my own, or sometimes I'd provide the story, and, and and somebody else would write the script. Or that's the way it works in television. Uh, we, we we had a head writer that was called a showrunner. Um, originally, there was a head writer before I got there, and and he uh, that guy was fired. There was some problems with him and or between him and the executive producer or also with Kevin Sorbo. Uh, the, the original guy, he was a great writer, and uh, in fact, he co-created Xena, uh, John Shulian. But his background was shows like L.A. Law and uh, Hill Street Blues, where the actor does not dare change a line of dialogue. <laughs> you know, and if you want to change a line of dialogue, you have to call for a set visit from the producer. Well, we're shooting in New Zealand. The producer in Hollywood can't just drop by the set because the actor calls and wants to change a line. So, but but it was a looser, you know, we weren't that kind of show. We weren't um, Hill Street Blues or the West Wing or whatever. It never bothered me if actors wanted to ad-lib. We had some great actors who were perfectly capable of it. As long as you deliver the, the intent of the scene, <laughs> it never bothered me if you changed the, the words a little bit. Uh, nevertheless, that first showrunner did have a problem with it. Uh, by the time I came along, there was another showrunner, and that that guy was the uh, the head writer. So if uh, at the end of the day, the final shooting strip might pass through his typewriter if it was necessary. Sometimes there are production reasons. We lose a location or whatever, and you have to change a scene for that reason. Um, th- those are the kind of reasons. Yes, the answer is in television, the, the, there's no one writer who generally carries a, an entire